0: Uh, Something else I love about our church, too, I want to tell you, is the worship ministry of our church. I really don't even have to come up here for the next 67 minutes or so and preach about Ezekiel 36 and 37. We have sung most of what is in those passages this morning. We've sung the gospel in every song this morning, so I want to say thanks. Since I don't get up here very often, I'm going to give a shout-out to Mel and Josh and those uh, team members that are always here for making sure that by the time whoever's speaking this morning comes up, your hearts are primed and ready to go, and you've heard the gospel repeatedly over and over and over again this morning. So we had turned to to Ezekiel 36 and 37. We're going to be a few different places there on the app. You can get to some, uh, some information there. Get your Bible, however you, however you look at it, paper, electronic. I'm going to give you a brief review, a really brief review of last week. Okay, last week Pastor Mike was here. He talked the whole point of the sermon last week was for us to see God's glory, right? That was the whole point. He walked through kind of a survey of Ezekiel. We learned that Ezekiel was a guy that prophesied around 597 B.C. or so, and he prophesied before God judges the nation and and exiles them before he raises up the Babylonians to carry them away into exile. Then he has the privilege of finding out during his ministry that God's judgment has in fact occurred and the people are being carried away as well that the, the, the city of Jerusalem has fallen, that the nation has fallen, the temple has been destroyed. He finds this out and he gets to talk about it. he gets to experience that Then he gets to see a, a very small glimpse of a promise of hope and restoration to come. Ezekiel is unique in that he gets to see these things both before the destruction of the temple and then he gets to see a vision what's to come afterwards. So remember, we said last week that God did everything. He does everything to reveal His glory. Everything God does and doesn't do is to reveal His glory, right? If you remember that from last week, Pastor Michael be happy. You've got that written somewhere. Everything God does and doesn't do is to clearly display His glory, which includes restoring this sinful, wicked, at this time, acting wicked nation of Israel. They were his chosen people, yet they behaved very wickedly at times. God judges them for this. God's glory is on display even in his attempt to reconcile himself himself to us, or ourselves to him. It's for his glory as much as it is our benefit. So we're going to see that this morning. If you're in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, we're going to see God promise Ezekiel he's going to gather his people from the nations, they've, remember they've been scattered. He's going to cleanse them from these different impurities, these impurities and uncleanness, he calls it. We'll see in just a minute. He's going to tell them he's going to give them some new stuff, a new heart and a new spirit. We'll see that in just a minute. Right. Let's read Ezekiel 36, 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from... All your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So here, God promises restoration. God promises restoration. This is not really what you expect as you read Ezekiel. Right? Ezekiel's kind of a weird book. There's a lot of weird things going on. I know weird. Uh, My family calls me weird all the time. Some of you didn't know me a little bit. Dude, you're weird. These there are some weird things that go on in the book of Ezekiel. Here in chapter 36, God tells Ezekiel what he's going to do. He's going to tell them he's going to restore them. Flip over to the next chapter to Ezekiel 37. We're going to see how. This will be done. Okay, God's going to use a, a remarkable vision to demonstrate to Ezekiel how he's going to restore hope for these people and restore them to himself, okay? I'm going to warn you, though, we cannot do all that's in this text in 36 and 37 today. So some of you Bible scholars, you're going to get about halfway through the message this morning. You're going to say, well, you, you didn't explain some stuff. I know. Right? I'm going to give you a, a lot of it, But about middle of October, end of October, we're going to get to the New Testament in this story sermon series. We're going to come back and grab some of the stuff out of Ezekiel 36, okay? So don't look at me and think you're going to stone me. I know I'm leaving some stuff out. We'll get it later, okay? All right? So let's look at Ezekiel 37. I'm going to read about 14 verses here and kind of stop along the way and explain some things to you and make some observations. Then we'll get into some takeaways and some things we can apply to our lives, okay? Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Bones signify death. These are, right, they signify death. Some people maybe think that this is to kind of symbolize uh, the, the aftermath maybe of what happened when God judges these people and, and the Babylonians come and, they sack the city and carry them away. This is maybe to symbolize a great battle here. You can see this on the screen. Uh, these, these guys are dead, right? No question there. symbolizes death. Verse 2, And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. They'd been dead a long time. Right? And this, this shows us that they really were dead. Any hope of life in these bones looks to be lost. Right? They're not kind of faking death, waiting until the enemy passes by. These guys, they've been dead for quite a while. They're very dry, obviously dead. Verse 3, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Something Ezekiel teaches me here that I think is important for us to understand. I think Ezekiel sees the hopelessness of this situation. He recognizes... Those are dead bones. Are they going to live again? Ezekiel doesn't say, no. Are you crazy? He just totally relies on God's sovereignty and his wisdom for the answer. Right? (laughs) I don't know, but you do. Right? Oh, Lord God, you know. It looks preposterous to suggest that they might. he yields to the wisdom and knowledge of God, which we would be wise to do as well. Like Ezekiel knows a miracle would have to occur For those bones to not be dry And come to life anymore He's acknowledging if it happens You're going to have to do it and tell them, You're going to have to explain this to me You know God Verse 4 Then he said to me prophesy over these bones And say to them O dry bones Hear the word of the Lord So you want me to talk To these bones right So that if, you, if you've been reading Ezekiel You really kind of expect some weird stuff right He'd already done a lot of weird things by then. This is weird too. Talk to the bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. you shall have life, he tells them. This is not um, kind of an unsure thing. When God speaks, he speaks clearly and directly, and he's, he's sure of what he's saying. You shall live. There's going to be a miracle. Right? I don't read that any other way. There will be a miracle if these dry bones can come to life. And, of course, then he says why he's going to do that or one of the, the, the things that's going to happen after this. You shall know. I am the Lord. Have you guys seen that theme a lot going through the story? Think back to Exodus. I mean, God cares about that a lot, he talks about it a lot. He, he acts so you will know that I'm the Lord. Or in last week's vernacular, so you will see my glory and my holiness. Verse 7. Let's see uh, the account of what Ezekiel does. We can learn some things from Ezekiel here as well. Verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. So Ezekiel obeys, right? It's a good, that's a good start. Ezekiel obeys. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, said of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Again, tells him, speak to the bones again. Verse 10, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So a miracle occurs. Ezekiel obeys God. He does exactly what he says, and a miracle occurs. It's kind of odd if you're Seeing this vision, there's dead bones now, a great army being resurrected or raised to life just based on the word of the Lord. But is that, this is what Ezekiel sees. This is what the word of God says. Verse 11, then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. It's not real often sometimes. We got some of these prophetic visions and stuff. But we've kind of got to interpret them ourselves. This is not one of those times. God's going to interpret the vision for Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So if Ezekiel's confused at this point, God clears it up. These are your people. These are my people. These are my chosen people. Remember what he's saying when he says the whole house of Israel. These are the people that I showed you and told you had been judged and carried away to Babylon. Who'd been lifted up out of the land I promised them, including you. And carried off. These are the bones of the whole house of my people, Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. So, not being there in Jerusalem and the temple not standing, to them, in Old Testament thinking at that point, the presence of God is gone. We're cut off from you, cut off from our relationship with you. They're gone from the temple. To them, there is no hope. To a, a, a dead person whose bones are dry like that, there is no hope of living. To the people of Israel, what, there's no hope that they're going to appropriately worship God. Verse 12. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And God's pretty sure right there, right? He says, I will do it, and you will know. That's a sure promise. This is hard to understand for you. I'm going to show you as best I can in a vision, but I will breathe life into you, and you shall live. kind of an odd passage, right? It's a famous passage, but kind of an odd passage. It's interesting. This whole imagery is just kind of odd, especially if you're Ezekiel and you live in 586 or so B.C. Right? We have the benefit of of the New Testament, of God explaining some of this that happens in the New Testament, right? We've got the benefit of much more revelation than they do. But if you're Ezekiel, if you're an Old Testament, Old Covenant thinker, this is really confusing, right? There are some things that we can learn about God and about ourselves in this passage, though, okay? There are some things we can learn about God and ourselves. Now, before we can totally... I think, understand what God's going to do for the nation of Israel. And in turn, for us later, we've got to understand our state first. We've got to understand the, the state, the position that Israel's in at the time of this vision, okay? We've got to stand the gravity of the situation. I mean, that's one of the purposes that God shows this to Ezekiel here, okay? We've got to understand that this was a big deal for God's chosen people to violate the covenant to improperly worship him and just disregard his authority and his holiness as they've done. Remember, this is 586 B.C., so a long time has passed, five, six hundred years since they've been given the law. A thousand years since they've been given the law, right? Five hundred years since the temple was built and Solomon said, worship here. A long time has passed. Most of Ezekiel, a lot of Isaiah, a lot of Jeremiah, is God's case presenting a charge to the nation of Israel you've broken the covenant. Did you read that? It's not pleasant reading. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel is not very pleasant a lot. It serves a purpose, though. is to show us how, how awfully God's chosen people have broken the covenant, disobeyed him, and to show us that we're capable as sinful men of the exact same thing as the nation of Israel was. In fact, we, we our sin mirrors that of theirs considerably. We'll see that as we go throughout this, okay? All right, so several things we're going to learn about God and us. First thing we're going to learn, we can see uh, in Ezekiel 36 and 37, is that God is holy. You saw that last week, right? You saw that anywhere you've read through the book of Ezekiel, specifically Ezekiel 1 through 3. Did you remember reading that? There's some weird stuff there, but you see God is holy. Even in chapter 36, the biggest reason we read that to start off with is to catch a couple phrases that God uses over and over and over. In thirty six twenty. But When they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profane my holy name. Verse 21, I had concern for my holy name. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, uh, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. When I show myself holy, he says in verse 23. God is holy because he says he's holy. He says it very clearly, repetitively, in Ezekiel 36. Later on, he has Peter kind of um, talk about in Leviticus where God said, Be holy because I'm holy. He Peter give us that statement in the New Testament. When we read Isaiah, we looked at Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah chapter 6? Maybe a, as great a picture of God's holiness as we have in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6, one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. God says he's holy. The seraphim say he's holy. We see his holiness demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. Holy means you're separate, you're different, you're set apart. I was uh, like any good dad recently, I've been pondering uh, our church's kind of recent commitment to family discipleship, which I am all for, uh, and we've rolled out this family discipleship plan. So my wife and I have been thinking, you know, we should be more intentional about teaching our kids about Christ and, teaching them theology and using points in our everyday life to, to talk about God, right? As good parents, do you guys that are parents, you can think about that. Well, I had one of those about two and a half weeks ago, and I thought, man, I'm going to take it. It's about God's holiness. Uh, my six-year-old, Grayson, one day uh, at our bar in the kitchen says, Dad, is God a man? And I was so well, I've been to seminary. I can handle this. I can explain all this. I got, I got this, and I thought, I'm not going to probably overthought it. I'm not going to teach him anything wrong, but I want to teach him something appropriate to his age, to his age and knowledge at this point. And so I didn't want to say, I know God came as Christ and put on flesh and walked as a man, was fully God, fully man. I get that, right? So I had the best I can do, and I said, well, Grayson, God is a separate being, and I guess in my explaining that. I kind of shortened the word being a little bit because Grayson, and uh, and I I was proud of him for this, uh, kind of rears his chest up and looks at me and says, God is not a bumblebee. (laughs) I I thought, what's he talking about? Being. God is a separate being, not separate. Be. I was proud of him. He came to God's defense. He was defending God's (laughs) holiness. I thought, well, I screwed it up, but he fixed it for me, right? God is a separate being. He's different. He's set apart. He is holy. Ezekiel makes that case really clear, and so does Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament prophets. Second thing, because of that, is God hates sin. If God is holy, God hates sin. Chapter 36, just before the passage we read a few minutes ago, there's verse 16. God uses some pretty strong language to the way he feels about sin. Okay? into the way that the way he describes what the people of Israel have done verse 16 the word of the Lord came to me son of man when the house of Israel lived in their own land they defiled it by their ways and by their deeds their ways were before me like the uncleanliness of a woman in her menstrual impurity so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land and the idols for which they had defiled it so I scattered them among the nations verse 20 When they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of the land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel, once again, had profaned among the nations to which they came. God hates sin. He uses very strong words to describe this. Why does he hate it? Sin is an insult to his character. Sin is an insult to his character. To God's character. God had given them a place. He promised them in Genesis 12 through 15 that he would give them a place. He tells Abraham this. He promises them they would be a great people. He promises them his presence. I will be your God and you'll be my people. That's all he asks. That's all he says. Obey the covenant. Later on we get some some laws and things that he gives Moses. Obey. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Yet before... Moses even comes down from the mountain with his law. The people have built, they've erected a golden cap. They've erected an idol, right? The people, just like we do today, created idol after idol and pursued many, many things apart from the one true God. They broke the covenant. It was heinous to him. They, they, they were defiled. They are unclean. Because God hates sin and because he's holy, he can't tolerate it, right? It would not be consistent with God's character to say God's holy and here's some sin. So, whatever. God doesn't view it that way, right? God does not view sin that way. He hates it. The third thing we can see from this is though that sin affects our hearts. Sin affects our hearts. Ezekiel 36 and 7 show us that our hearts are dead They're hard, and they're going to need to be replaced. Let's see where that is and let God demonstrate that to us as well. First, our hearts are hard. Verse 26 of chapter 36. He says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you the heart of flesh. He calls it a heart of stone. Stone is hard. It's not, you can't kind of work with it. It's hard. Stone is hard. There's a guy named Thomas Guthrie. Uh, we don't speak like this a lot today. So when I read, hang with me. But this is I'm going to direct quote Thomas Guthrie. Let there be no mistake when I speak of the heart as a stone, that I'm looking at it as God as it looks on God. however distressing it is, and it is most distressing to think that persons otherwise most lovely, and as of lo- most loving hearts are so cold and callous to the claims of Jesus yet so far as divine love to sinners and so far as the kindness of saving mercy are concerned, <laughs> I am convinced that among the rocks which beat back the roaring sea, up in the crags where dews and rain and bright sunbeams fall, down in the earth's darkest and deepest mines, there lies bedded no stone colder, harder, less impressible, more impenetrable than an unrenewed heart. Thomas Guthrie does a very poetic job, more poetic than I could be, of explaining the hardness Of our heart as stone. The second thing is that our hearts are dead. Our hearts are dead. When we read Jeremiah chapter 17, we saw uh, Jeremiah 17 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah was another prophet that has the task of talking about the depravity of man to their people. Desperately sick here doesn't mean got the flu, got the cold. Desperately sick here means medically incurable, dead. Your heart is medically incurable and dead. This is a problem, though, for those people. Then it's a problem for us. At the time that Jeremiah and Ezekiel lived in the Old Testament, your heart was the center of your very being. For us, we know it has a physical purpose. It pumps blood, right? And we have these little red hearts that we say for love and all that. For them, your heart was everything. It was your soul, your mind. It was your inner being. So for Jeremiah to say that your heart is so desperately sick it's dead and medically curable created a major, major problem. And Ezekiel would have understood that. The people of God would have understood that when Jeremiah told them that then. Because our hearts are hard and dead, they need to be replaced. Our hearts need to be replaced. Again, verse 26 of 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. Now that sounds real positive. We're going to get to that in a minute. And it is. We're not there yet, though. By saying you need a new heart implies that there's something wrong with your current one, right?'t you, you don't take out something that's functioning just fine. You need a new heart. It's irreparable. I'll give you a new one. The problem though, in is. This fourth thing I want us to see, though, if God's holy, God hates sin, and our hearts have sin in them, and they're dead and cold need to be replaced, the bad news is that God judges sin. God judges sin. He always has. It would be inconsistent with his character if he didn't. If he's holy and hates sin, it would be inconsistent if he did not judge sin, all the way back in the garden. Genesis 3.17 God tells Adam he's going to judge his sin. And to Adam he said Because you've listened to the voice of the wife and have eaten of the tree in which I commended you you shall not eat of it. Because you sin I'm, ju- I'm judging you. And immediately man has a problem. We call this the fall. Sin enters the world. Man has a massive problem. So Here's the crime. Right? You, you did something I told you not to. You didn't obey my commandments. We're going to see what his penalty, what the punishment for that's going to be in just a moment. God judges sin for the nation of Israel very clearly. That's why those bones are there in the first place, to give them an image of the desolation that occurs as a result of their exile. God judges the northern kingdom, remember? 722, and he raises up the Assyrians to defeat the northern kingdom and carries them away to Assyria. And then most recently, God raises up the Babylonians to defeat the southern kingdom, destroy Jerusalem, and carry them away. They have a really clear, they understand God's judgment of sin. Ezekiel's there because of God's judgment of sin. Later on, the apostle Paul would explain God's judgment of sin like this. Romans 1.18, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He explains that my wrath, God's wrath is going to be upon you as judgment for your sin. Thankfully, and we're not going to get all there totally today, we're going to mention it at the end, but thankfully, God's later going to provide a permanent judgment for sin. A permanent judgment of sin is to come. Hang on, we'll get there a little bit later, okay? So, if... Sin makes our hearts hard and dead, and they need to be replaced, and God has to judge sin. Sin makes us dead. Sin makes us dead. Again, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, God tells Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You're going to die because of your sin. Sin has always caused death, even back to Genesis 3. That picture we showed a minute ago symbolizing the nation of Israel shows us that Israel was dead, rotting, and decaying. Jeremiah, Ezekiel tell us that we're doing the same thing. If, the heart, if our hearts are the very center of our being and who we are, and they're dead, and so naturally are we. Again, we have the benefit of the Apostle Paul explaining this to us a little bit better. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. A couple verses before that, most of you guys learned this. You probably learned this in I's this, this year at some point. Paul said that the wages of sin was death. So God's judgment of sin led to the penalty of sin, which is death. Another thing we see from this, it looks like in Ezekiel 37, is that death is irreversible. Death is irreversible. Ezekiel thought it was impossible. When God said, can these bones live? Right? He thought... He did, He just yields to God, I don't know, what do you think? Right? It looks impossible to Ezekiel. In the Old Testament, death was viewed as an impossible situation. Remember, these people don't have the benefit of Jesus raising a dead girl to life. They've not heard yet that there would even be a Jesus who would raise Lazarus or that Jesus himself would raise himself to life. The Old Testament thinker, they see death as irreversible. And no one returned from death. It was was an impossible situation. It was an impossible situation by human means, though. Because there is hope. That's the next point. There is going to be hope. Death looks irreversible, but there is hope. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 37 again. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold these bones. I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. Behold, they say our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We're indeed cut off, they say in verse 11. God says, no, no, no. I know you think your hope is lost, but there is hope. You shall live. God gives the nation of Israel hope that they will live again. We know that they will. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks. We know that God's going to raise up the Persians and King Cyrus to defeat the Babylonians, let them go back to Israel. We're going to get there, like I said, in a couple of weeks. So this does happen. God said it would, and it did. We have the benefit, and the knowledge of history, know that it does. But Israel's physical return was only the beginning of the fulfillment of of this prophecy. That's the near fulfillment. God says, You will live, and then return you back to the land. You'll know me. You can worship me there. God returning Israel, the nation of Israel, those people, to their land is only the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy. A later fulfillment we're going to see now. And our hope, Israel's hope, is that they could be raised to life, a great army, go back to where they came from. Our hope is that we, too, can be raised to life. We can be raised to life. It's clear, I think, that Ezekiel had a, uh, when he saw this, he had a a vision in his mind of a, a national resurrection, that his people would get to go back. They'd be raised, get to go back, kind of get a reprieve. But it's also clear that the implication from this text is it the same God who had the power to resurrect a whole nation for its thousand years of covenant break, for its of just being totally um, disobedient to the God of the universe? That same God has the power to conquer what our greatest enemy is, sin and death. That same God who can raise them to life and restore them also has the power to defeat sin and death. How, how can God do that? He doesn't explain that a whole lot here. How, how can God do this? Well, there's a couple things to just note before we uh, move on and before we wrap up. First one is God is the author of life. God created life in the first place. God has power over life and death. In creation, God just simply breathed life into Adam in Genesis 1 and 2. Here he's going to breathe life again into the bones of the nation of Israel. The Word of God gives life. When God speaks, there is life. Write these down. We're not going to go through them right now. Hebrews 4, 12 through 14. Hebrews 4, 12 through 14 and 1 Peter 1, The Word of God is active. It's living. It has power. God demonstrates it when His words and breath alone cause the bones to come to life. God is the author of life. When He speaks, He gives life. There's still an issue, though. There is hope, we, we believe. We just said God has the power to raise dead things to life, to raise us to life. There's still an issue. If God's holy, though, he cannot disregard our sin. He cannot disregard the nation of Israel's sin. God has to deal with our sin before we can just be ushered back into his presence and be restored to him. He has to deal with our sin. He just cannot disregard it. He cannot just wink at it or snicker about it. He cannot disregard it. He has to deal with it. Ezekiel 16, God promised a time when he would make atonement for this faithless Israel. There's a a bit of a prophecy and a vision there. He says, I'm going to make atonement. Again, Ezekiel probably doesn't understand that totally then. Later on, he also promised a day that there would come... uh, he would judge the people's shepherds that they had that were useless all those years. If you remember reading in First and Second Kings how useless the, the, the shepherds, the kings of Israel, were over them. He would judge them and would place over them one shepherd. Verse 23, Ezekiel 34, flip back a couple of pages. God tells him, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, David, shall be prince among them. Over in 37, let's flip back over there, after this vision of dry bones, as God continues to explain to Ezekiel what he sees and what's going to happen. In verse 22, he says, And I will make them, among, uh, make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. to restore this, the divided kingdom. In verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children, their children's children, shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Ezekiel doesn't know this, but who, who is this coming prince? Who is this coming shepherd? Again, we look back to the cross and see, and we have the benefit now of knowing this coming shepherd would be none other than Christ, our shepherd king. By eventually laying down his life on the cross, Christ will pay the penalty for our sins to all of us who would repent and believe he's going to bring peace to rebellious people who turn their own way, who worship things other than him, who make idols of things other than him. Only through Christ can we be reconciled to the Father, because only Christ pays the penalty of our sin. First Peter chapter two verse twenty four. Peter would say that he himself, that's Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin. And here's this word again that Ezekiel uses: and live to righteousness. Christ has to absorb the wrath of God in his body and pay the penalty of our sin, be judged for our sin on the cross. Paul says that Christ became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Christ had to be there and be a lamb slain for us to cover, to take away our sin so that we could even be restored. That hope that we have, God had to deal with it and he does so in the person of His Son, Christ. We have the band come on up this morning as we get close to ending here. But I want to remind you that we're not yet finished, okay? We are, the service is not over. Anytime you hear the Word of God taught or read, the Word of God demands a response. It never returns void. I think there are, there are two Possible responses to Ezekiel 36 and 37 There are two possible responses to 36 and 37 One is you can hear Jesus say I am the good shepherd in John chapter 10 That I am going to come and lay down my life for my sheep That I am the good shepherd You can respond in repentance and faith to that And surrender to him those of us that have already been adopted into the family of God have a different response, okay? We have a different response. We're going to do that in just a moment. You guys go ahead and bow your heads there, please, as they, Josh is going to just kind of begin to play and quietly behind us. One set of responses that may need to happen in this room is, you can say, if I never place, place my faith in Christ, does that mean my heart is still... Dead and hard. God's wrath is still solely directed toward me for my sin. It does. The next few moments, and even after we dismiss, there'll be people uh, out there at the hub. You can't miss the big orange sign. There'll be people that would love to speak with you about surrendering your life to Christ, seeing Him as your good shepherd, You to repent of your sin, to turn from it, to believe in him. New Testament says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he is the son of God, he will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all your unrighteousness.